Saturday, November 4th, Texas Motor Speedway is having a Junior Nation Appreciation Party and you are invited. A live Q&A with Junior Motorsports drivers as well as snacks and beverages. For more information, go to TexasMotorSpeedway.com. This is Dale Jr. and you're listening to Dirty Mo' Radio. I was happy for Dad after it was over and he had won, but I don't like to finish second. This is the Daytona 500 and thank God! It's an accomplishment that we'll not forget. There's a lot of satisfaction in winning the championship. Jeff Gordon out of turn number four. He will lay claim to his first ever Winston Cup victory and it comes in the Coca-Cola 600. Rick Hendrick, I hope I'm with you for a long time. At the end of the day, you still want to see a lot of people in those stands. I am history. (laughs) Back in the day, with Steve Richards and Ron LeMasters. NASCAR history is a rich tapestry of speed, personality, and great racing. Here at Back in the Day, we celebrate that history by keeping it alive, just like Dale Earnhardt Jr. did on the original TV show. We'll take important dates, races, and trends in NASCAR and pass them along to you. Here comes Back in the Day from the Exalta Studio inside Junior Motorsports. Texas Motor Speedway is, for all intents and purposes, the Lone Star Coliseum, where gladiators go to race their chariots in full-on, wide-open style. That befits the track built in 1997 near the former frontier outpost of Fort Worth, which datelines itself No Limits, Texas. It's an important place in NASCAR fans' hearts, and also that of Dale Earnhardt Jr., who earned the first of his so far 26 NASCAR Cup Series victories there in 2000. Yeah, I tell you, that was a hard, hard last 50 laps. I was wore out. Uh, mentally, I'm tired, man. Uh, it's, it's everything I had. Just Catch your breath, brother. This is your first one. You can take all the time you want. I'm all out. I need some breath. I'll tell you that. It's just a good race. The car was awesome. That was an important first step for the then 25-year-old Earnhardt Jr. Not only did he win the race, his first as a full-time competitor in NASCAR's premier series, he beat his father to the checkered flag. Dale Sr. finished seventh that day and did not lead a lap. It was a red-letter day for the family, as you might expect. That's awesome, wasn't it? i tell you, the kid's something else. Just unbelievable. Well, they said he's going to Texas, and that's where he won his first Bush Grand National race. He figured he'd win his first cup race here. Meanwhile, Martinsville Speedway is, in most ways that matter, the heart of NASCAR. Built in 1947, the track predates NASCAR by a full year, and Clay Earl's family is still running things there through Clay Campbell, the president and general manager. One of the first tracks to sign on with the fledgling sanctioning body, the tiny .526 mile paperclip is a twice yearly throwback all on its own. Former driver Jeff Burton explains why it's so special. That racetrack is sitting there just like it was 40 years ago. You're racing on a track that a lot of our heroes in our sport raced on. Now, there's nicer grandstands, there's nicer concession stands, there's nicer restrooms, there's suites and all that. But the racetrack is the same. That's what's special about it. Despite running there twice a year since 2000, Dale Earnhardt Jr. has just one grandfather clock trophy to his name. That doesn't mean he hasn't had success there, but rather emphasizes how difficult it can be to win on a track that's just over a half mile in length and doesn't have helpful banking to make the NASCAR beasties turn better. You look at all of them and see how close you came, but I think the best car I had here was when we knocked the right front fender off and we ended up running fourth that day. We, I was coming back through the field and spun out on the inside of Newman in three and four, and had that not happened, I think we would have been in position to win the race because we were by far uh, the quickest car. We had to go back to the back of the field after that one spin, that additional spin, and, and we didn't have enough race left to get back to the front we ended up finishing fourth but that car was really really fast having that fender tore off kept that uh, right front tire cool kept it turning kept the brakes cool 
we were kind of an average car for 10 laps, and then after that, it just take off. So I've been trying to figure out how to get my fenders to fall off ever since. It's a real driver's racetrack and offers nothing in the way of saving graces when stuff goes wrong. There's simply no time to recover from a pit road miscue or an on-track incident. On an earlier episode of Back in the Day, we detailed Dale Jr.'s 2014 victory, in which he passed Tony Stewart to get that clock. This time, we'll talk about the track, the history, and the track's place in the high-tech sport that is NASCAR. Steve Richards, producer of Back in the Day, as well as a longtime pit reporter and broadcaster for the Performance Racing Network, is here to take you on this journey. But first, let's travel back to 1947 and to 1997 for a look at what was going on in the world. A liner off Nagy's glove into center field. The Florida Marlins have won the World Series. In 1997, the Florida Marlins topped the Cleveland Indians in seven games to win the World Series. And 50 years earlier, in 1947... Here is Joe DiMaggio, the Yankee Clipper, flashing a victorious grin. So all hail to the New York Yankees, baseball's world champion. The New York Yankees beat the Brooklyn Dodgers, also in seven games. In 1947... Oh, look! We're flying! We're flying! Pan Am Airlines offered the first around-the-world airline ticket ever. A short while ago, Buckingham Palace confirmed the death of Diana, Princess of Wales. She was 36. In 1997, Princess Diana died in a car crash in Paris, sparking a worldwide outpouring of grief. Others who passed in 1997 included Mother Teresa, actors Denver Pyle. Phone, Luke. Can you find anything, Uncle Jesse? Back here. Right here in the own backyard. Look at that. Uncle Jesse to you Dukes of Hazard fans. Burgess Meredith. <laughs> the penguin in the old Batman TV series. And singer John Denver. Those who left us back in 1947, gangsters Al Capone and Bugsy Siegel, automotive pioneer Henry Ford, and Man of War, the famous racehorse who lived to the ripe old age of 30. Among those born in 1947 were NASCAR legend Darrell Waltrip. It's kind of the NASCAR way. The squeaking wheel gets the grease, or sometimes it gets replaced. Actress Farrah Fawcett, hubba hubba. And musician David Bowie. Steve, Texas is a real barn burner for the Cup Series, especially in the playoffs. It's given us some magical and maniacal moments over these golden years. That's absolutely right, Ron, especially the crazy stuff. Uh, a couple of years ago, you remember the uh, Keselowski-Jeff Gordon fight? I, a cast of thousands. Yeah, down on Pit Road. That was a lot of fun. You were right in the middle of that. Yeah, kind of, sort of, kind of, yeah. sort of. Yeah, several of our guys were. Jim Noble was calling the action, and then uh, I had to get Brad on after uh, he uh, got back to the garage, and that was a lot of fun. After the cut man got done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, were you down there? I was not. Uh, let's take you there. I'm saying what I'm saying. No good as money. Come on, man. Come on. Let's do it. We're not doing it. Let's go. Let's go punch in the face. Was that a traffic jam or a fight? That both. Yeah. <laughs> I think it was both. Well, I, you know, that spontaneous uh, fisticuffs are as much a part of NASCAR as, uh, you know, hot dogs at Martinsville. But but you look at the way that started, mm -hmm. Kevin Harvick is a sly old dog. Well, you know, Harvick was standing there on pit road, and he basically shoved Brad toward Jeff. Mm -hmm. And uh, here's how it all went down as told to us 
after the race by Harvick, Gordon, and Kozlowski. The two just bulldozed the 24 and the 24 wrecked, and you know the 48 and the two were, were racing hard. And at that point, there was just no rules, so you just stood in the gas and hoped for the best. And then after the race, it all, all broke loose. I just told Brad he needed to get in there and fight his own fight. You know, drive like that. Would I be disappointed if I went out there and I just dumped somebody to win the race? Yeah, that, I think you look through my history of racing, that's never been the case. That's not the way I race. I, have, I don't wreck people to win. I've been in incidents at the end of the race, but I can say with a clear mind and heart that they weren't intentional and that they were all out going for the win, and sometimes things happen. It ruined our chances, ruined our night, might have even ruined our chase hopes. Uh, it's just uncalled for. I had to show my displeasure. It got ugly down there. Obviously. That's all right. A lot of things are going to happen over the next couple of weeks. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to race like that, you're going to have to man up a little bit at some point. I mean, he's done it several times, so you can't just turn around and let everybody fight all the time without you in there. You're going to have to stand up for your actions at some point yourself. I came here to race, not fight. If I wanted to be a fighter, I would have joined the UFC or I'd have a management team like he does. But I came here to race 100%. The only thing I wouldn't be proud of is I went and started fights or jumped in fights. I wouldn't be proud of that. I didn't come here to fight. I came here to race 100%. And the people that want to see fights aren't true race fans. And they need to watch UFC and WWE because that's not what racing is. Uh, but that's okay. You know, I, I know that in my heart that I raced 100% and that I did uh, what should be done to be a professional race car driver. It's a motion that is a part of this chase and this format as well as towards people that make dumb decisions. And he's been making a lot of them lately. And that's why people have been running after him and chasing him down. And that's why his team's got to defend him over there because of what he does on the racetrack, you know, and uh, whatever. The rhetoric gets pretty thick. <laughs> I'm sure that all plays into the uh, intimidation factor or the attempt to intimidate. But I've already gone much further than I thought I'd ever go in this sport with the mentality that I have. I'm not going to give up on it because there's some resistance now. <sighs> that would be a shame. That'd be a tragedy. I'm going to continue to push forward to what I'm doing. It served me in the past, and I believe it'll serve me in the future. I, I think he's just racing as hard as he can for his team, and he's, you know, he's trying to get all you can. But <laughs> when it gets down to, to that type of racing, you gotta, you know, those things are going to happen exactly like they happen after the race tonight. So. But I don't think there's anything wrong with it as long as you're ready to roll. If a guy like me caves, whether it's Jeff Gordon, Carl Edwards, list out the drivers that I've had run-ins with. Whenever they try to push back on me, if I cave, then that'll end that run in the sport, and that'll be a shame. Uh, that'd be a shame for everybody. It'd be a shame for the history of the sport. It'd be a shame for the fans that come here to see us race 100%. Uh, and for that, uh, I'm not going to be ashamed. That's an interesting soliloquy, especially by Brad, because you know he's never wrecked anybody intentionally, but there's sure been a lot of people spinning off the nose of that two-car mm -hmm. over the last several years. Mm -hmm. Now, I get it. He's 100% he's in it. And that's great. But, you know, what is it? The, one of the first things you learn as an athlete is there are consequences to your actions. That's right. And you know, manning up is part of that. Like, like Dale Jr. said a couple of weeks ago when Jeff Gordon and Ryan Newman had words following the cutoff race, mm -hmm. um, you know, Dale said, you've got to step to him. Okay. Well, Brad's kind of conveniently leaving that out because, you know, all right, you do something. Look, Carl Edwards. Uh-huh. You know. And I, I get, I 100% understand why Brad didn't crack the throttle at Talladega. That's first win. You know, Carl was blocking. You run through him. He had the line, right? Mm -hmm. Understand that. Right. All right. His reaction afterwards, didn't like that too much. Because he came in, people bleeding in the stands, stuff got in the stands from the, from the accident. He's woohoo, you know. 
and it was sort of out of kilter. Mm-hmm. Now, this happens. He causes a fight. He leaves. Joey Logano, same way. Kevin Harvick, the same way, which I thought was odd because Kevin Harvick is in there talking about how Brad needs to step up. Well, Kevin doesn't anymore. Kevin has his wall of people, you know, and, and so a, a lot of the things that he's accusing Brad of doing, he's done. Yeah, but Harvick, Harvick is not going to run from a fight. Oh, no, no, no. Because no. he was a high school wrestler, mm-hmm. a very good one, mm-hmm. and Harvick is just that kind of guy. Right. Well, he's Stu Grimson, the Grim Reaper yeah. from hockey fame. Uh-huh. But And I get that. He's willing to step two. Brad so far has not been. Now, I understand. I'm, I'm racing 100%. I don't get in fights. Well, okay, but some, some boys – are going to make you put your put your foot in the ring. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're going to put a foot somewhere else if you don't. <laughs> and I think that's what Harvick was trying to say. But it happened at Texas. Texas is, is built for that. You know, so is Martinsville, for that for that matter. Well, Jeff Gordon and Jeff Burton got into it at Texas a few right. years ago as well, and they ended up riding to the care center in the same ambulance. That was fun. Yeah. At least they had, least they had the cut stuff right there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they, well, never, they never fought. No. No. Cooler heads prevailed. Well, pure emotion. Jeff Gordon might seem all cool and put together on the outside. He's just as testy as the rest of them are. Oh yeah. And Jeff Burton, I don't. I'd go out of my way not to tick him off. Mm-mm, because, no. Well, first off, he makes sense. You know, he's always been a great guy. Yeah. Tough racer. But if you beat him, you beat him. Yep. Now, if you park him, run far and run fast. Right. Now, but he's not like Clint Boyer with the two-mile run at Phoenix to get to, to Jeff Gordon. To Jeff Gordon, yeah. But, you know, you, you look at, at some of the things that Gordon has done. He stepped to Matt Kenseth at Bristol. Mm-hmm. Had his helmet on and everything. Matt shows up to apologize and gets popped. Yep. You know, and then this thing at, at Texas with uh, with Jeff Burton. You know, he and Tony St- – I, I was on YouTube the other day looking for something else, and I found the Tony Stewart-Jeff Gordon – Cat fight, basically, is what it was. <laughs> Yipping at each other in the in the garage area somewhere. Right. It might have been Texas. I can't remember Daytona, but but anyway, it was funny because it was it was very early in Tony's career, and Jeff had been around for about ten years. Mm-hmm. So maybe two thousand two or so, and that was funny. Tony's not going to back down from anything either. So. No, 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 he's not. And you, you, you know, know him. Yeah. Oh, well, here's the thing. You know, racers. There's not a whole lot of businessman racers. Mm-hmm. You know, get there, put the pocket protector on once you get out of the car, go, you know, go do actuarial tables when you go to the hauler. Mm-hmm. You know, they there it is still it's not as rough and tumble as it used to be. Yeah. And, and especially at local levels, it's I mean, you'll have it's a bloodbath every now and again. You know, I remember being at Flemington Speedway in New Jersey, which is now a shopping mall. Uh-huh. Um, there was a fight that it, that pretty much there were probably Eight or nine hundred people in the infield, and I I would bet you that there were less than fifty that not involved <laughs> at at one point. Street stocks, right, right. And it was oh, it, I mean, it was fun. We just sat there and kind of commented on it, but it, but it was uh, it was an all hands evolution at that point. Another person you think about when you think of Texas Motor Speedway is Adam Petty. Exactly, it was his only start uh-huh. in the Cup Series. I was fortunate enough to have uh, interviewed him in pre race, mm-hmm. and. Um, what was interesting is that a month before he passed away, I found uh, this cut with Kyle Petty, and he talked about how they're such a close-knit family because of what they do, and that's race cars. I've been where my father is, to a lar- large degree, with driving race cars and doing that stuff. I've got a lot of the same experience that he has, a lot of the same life experiences that he has. And Adam's coming along after me, and I already know where he's going. You know what I mean? You know how hard he's going to hit a wall someday. You know how it's going to be uh, publicity-wise or, or when 
another driver's mad at you or you're mad at somebody else. There's a lot of those same things. So it, it, there's a bind there between you uh, that makes it a lot closer. Um, so, I, you know, like I said, it's, it's the same thing. It's, there's, and there's a lot of rural families that way that just pass on farms or, or grocery stores or whatever. They know what the next generation has to expect, so there is a closeness. Kind of spooky. That is eerie. Yeah. That is very eerie. That was eerie. And look, you know, Adam Petty remains one of the one of the great tragedies, I think, in, in motorsports simply sure. because of what he meant to the future of Petty Enterprises. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there was a number tossed around, I think, back when you and I talked about this at one point. He was worth about $80 million to the Petty Empire. Not trying to put a price on on a young man's life. And sure. He, by all accounts, he was an exceptional young man. Mm-hmm. Um, you were at the, the same ARCA race that I was at, where he beat Bobby Hamilton Jr. Yeah, that yeah. was a dogfight. That was at Charlotte, and it was it was a wonderful race. And that that picture of the four of them, mm-hmm. uh, all four generations of the Petties in victory lane, that was awesome. Yeah. And you know the the future was so bright. It, it kind of you know to a lesser extent, Rob Barroso had that same feel to it yeah yeah but it's tragically and senseless and and you know i will say that his passing with the addition of the safety stuff with with dale senior tony roper kenny Irwin, that sort of thing he was the first person to sound that alarm that something was wrong inside that race car and you know if it's small consolation but you know that's kind of what kick-started that whole push Two years after that, 2002, Kyle said that it was very weird not having Adam around. There's always a time during every day where things don't line up. It's just not right, you know, and, and you can't put your finger on it. But I, I think I think all parents uh, or anybody who, who experiences a loss like that, we're not the only people that's ever lost a son uh, or a daughter or a loved one by any stretch of the imagination. I think everybody deals with their losses different. Uh, I've said that before. And you have to work through it and you have to go on. You can't just sit at home and not do anything. That's not the way that you want to live and that's not the way that, that your loved ones would want you to live. So I think for us it's just been you know our faith in God and just a lot of prayer and just continuing to move on. That is as concise an explanation as I've ever heard of how you deal with the loss of somebody like your son. And even though Kyle said that back in 2002, it still holds true today. Absolutely. And, you know, there are days when, you know, you will sit there and you say, God, what if Adam Petty was still here? What if Adam Petty had made more than that one start at Texas? Yeah. What if, what if, what if? You know, those are the two saddest words in the English language, in my opinion. Yeah, and I was thinking about that last night. What if Adam Petty had not died? What if Dale Earnhardt had not died? What what would it, it just wouldn't have been, it would have been so different. Mm-hmm. Oh, it would absolutely. It so different. You, and you think about how it would be different. Mm-hmm. I mean, if Dale was around, I don't think the COT would have ever seen the light of day. Probably not. Not until, well. He if, had that much influence. If you believe in karma or whatever, you know, somebody else would have paid that price. Yeah, maybe. You know, maybe. And, and Tony Roper was, and Kenny Irwin, mm-hmm. uh, you know, those guys. But eventually that weakness in the armor that is the, the, the car, or was the car then, would have been exposed by somebody. Yeah. Because the driver is always the weakest link in the chassis. It was just a, a shame that it had to have been those guys right. that, that sparked the safety that we have today. Mm-hmm. And that so many drivers' lives were saved mm-hmm. because of the, the safety uh the efforts NASCAR you, made. You look at uh, even our own guys here. Mm-hmm. Justin Allgaier hit a wall darn near head on at 185 miles an hour at Daytona earlier at the first race of the season. Yeah. Elliot Sadler, that crash at Pocono, mm-hmm. where he went head on and stopped. Yeah. The engine is 300 yards down the track and he's getting out of the car. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. Hey, Ward Burton hit a wall 
extremely hard during a test. Mm-hmm. And even he said that had some of the safety features not been there, advancements that he probably wouldn't have survived. Yeah, Keselowski at Road Atlanta. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, that kind of test. He, You don't hit concrete walls at that kind of speed with a car that weighs that much without some visceral effects to you. Mm-hmm. And now, you know, people like Tom Gideon and Trevor Ashline need to be commended for the way that they've they've helped the safety in these race cars. Mm-hmm. And also Dr. Dean Sicking. Dr. Dean Sicking for the uh, for safer Nebraska. Barriers. Yeah. Safer barriers, yeah. 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 Which, I, incidentally, the concept for that was started by the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. It was. Mm-hmm. And I can't remember what... I know why. They <laughs> it tended to throw the car back into <laughs> into the path of other cars, which is never good. No, that is not a good thing. But, you know, look, it got the ball rolling, mm-hmm. so to speak. And what's what's uh, interesting is that we did an interview with Dr. Dean Sicking earlier this year, mm-hmm. and he talked about the fact that that technology, yeah, it's being used in at racetracks, but it's also out on the highway in some places. Right. And it has saved lives out on the highway. Pennsylvania Turnpike is out. Oh, yeah, yeah. And there was a guy that um, was a younger man in his early 20s who tried to commit suicide when his pickup truck and sped and hit one of those walls head on. And he survived with, with very, you know, with very little injury. Mm-hmm. And he actually thanked Dr. Sicking. He found, he found Dr. Sicking, called him, and the man uh, received help. He realized that I was put on this earth to do other things, and he got the help he needed and thanked Dr. Sicking for his work and the fact that he survived that crash. Well, you know, that's kind of the extreme, I I would think, but it's really a a very good example of how hard a lot of people work Mm -hmm. to make sure we still have a sport that's viable, that's growing, and and we're not, you know, losing drivers to stuff that, by and large, is preventable. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So now, but that said, anytime you get in a race car, there's a chance you might not. Oh sure, you know, make Every, it around. Yeah, everybody knows the danger. So, yeah, everybody knows so. the danger. So, but you know, God bless Adam Petty. You know, I mean, mm. he was a, and he was. Look, if you looked at him and you looked at an old picture of Richard mm-hmm. at that age, it was identical. I mean, yeah. seriously, it was spooky. Mm-hmm. So, what could have been? You know, Martinsville has a special place in most NASCAR fans' hearts. It's kind of a Sesame Street track, don't you think? Really? Well, it's, here's one that's not like the others. Oh, you know? okay. Gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> the Earnharts have had success there. Dale Sr. won six times. Dale Jr. once in 2014, as we said. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think really Martinsville is, as much as Talladega is a wild card, I think Martinsville is even more so. Most of the things that you think about in NASCAR is going as fast as you can, as hard as you can, Talladega you know, wide open, cross the finish line on fire on, on your roof and all that sort of thing. Martinsville is like death of a thousand cuts. <laughs> yeah. Because it's 500 laps, four corners, really two corners, but uh, for, for just to keep it symmetrical. But uh, but it's a different kind of race, and it's it's an old school throwback. We are going to go around this little bull ring 500 times, and the best man wins. Well, you talk about 500 times. Now, right. Junior, when he won the race in 2014, knew that he had the car to win. He, I mean, he's had that feeling several times, but mm-hmm. on this particular day, he told us afterwards that he had to stop himself mid-race because he was thinking about what it was like to win the race <laughs> later on that afternoon. You get to running really good, and you sort of, about lap 200, you start daydreaming about what it might be like to win, and I just refused to let myself do that in this particular race. I don't know if that had anything to do with how we ended up winning, but 
every time I start to drift off and start daydreaming about what it might be like to get the wind today, maybe this is the day I'd shut it down as hard as I could and just get back to whatever the hell was happening on the racetrack. But that was pretty funny. <laughs> well, you know, 500 times, you have a lot of time to think. Yeah, absolutely. Because, it, look, it's a 20-second it's a lap, really. Mm-hmm. You know, by the time they start uh, racing for real. And 20 seconds, you you know, you don't have a whole lot. It's it's turn, it's hard on the gas, it's hard on the brake. It's, you know, there, there's a lot of technical aspects to it that there isn't there at Talladega or Daytona. And Dale finally got the grandfather clock. Yes, he did. Yeah. And where does it sit? Uh, well, hold on. He let Amy decide where to put it. I was glad to hear her say she thought it was beautiful, so I know it'll get a good place up front somewhere, hopefully in the living room. I'm going to put it somewhere where I see it every day. I want to put it just inside the front door where you got to walk around the damn thing when you come in the house. <laughs> but she probably won't let me sit it there. Did that? Is that what happened? It's somewhere in there, yeah. It's somewhere in the living room. Yeah. But it's, uh, it, you know, and, and there is, you're married, I'm married, uh, Dale is now married. He's starting to find out exactly what the limits are of that. Right. And, and anything to do, and besides, Amy, Amy Earnhardt, right. is an interior designer. Right. So obviously that's her bailiwick, you know. <laughs> right. You let her say where it belongs, as long as it's not out in the garage, you know. And I caught up with Tony Stewart after that race, after Junior won, and we talked about the grandfather clock, and Tony said that he knows that Junior's first grandfather clock is very special. This is one of those trophies that it's very unique, and it's something that's a big deal to, to the drivers and the teams in the series. I mean, it's when you're young, grandfather clock doesn't sound very cool. But when it comes from Martinsville Speedway, it's it's pretty badass. <laughs> it is. He's got several of his own. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, yeah, he can't tell time. No, <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> he can. He just ignores it. Uh huh. That's, that's true. Having worked with Smoke, there is what somebody I can't remember who it was. I think it might have been Eddie Jarvis, mm-hmm. Tony's longtime you know manager. Right. Used to say there's five time zones in this country. One of them is Smoke time. <laughs> and he had you know, he he was uh, always. He knew where he had to be, knew what his obligations were, but if you were his PR rep, you sweat bullets trying to get him to stuff on time. And when it comes to Martinsville, Jeff Gordon and Jimmy Johnson come to mind as two of the best drivers, most winningest drivers at Martinsville. And they're never late because they have a combined, what, 19 clocks? (laughs) That's right. That's right. I remember an epic battle in 1999. Jeff Gordon beat Dale Earnhardt at Martinsville. I got to be honest with you, all I could think of is Terry Labonte. (laughs) You know, and I was like, man... (laughs) I was like, man, I hope he doesn't get to my bumper, you know, because <laughs> uh, I knew I'd be feeling a little bit of a nudge, which you just expect in short track racing, especially a hard racer like Dale. And uh, instead, he waited till after I crossed the checkered flag to give me the nudge. <laughs> rattle him. Rattle his cage. Yeah, but after after he's already taken the checkered, it's good. No. Yeah. Well, look, I, I think I was at that race. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I know I was. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, Gordon was just, he was just fast enough to stay off the bumper right right and you know dale would have moved him i mean sure who, who, who here among us who's ever seen dale race thought he wouldn't move mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but it wouldn't have been dirty it would have been in the spirit of, of how it does and 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 i think you know for a time there you know you went to you go to martinsville and gordon was going to win the race or kurt bush and, and for a while there that's all the only guys that won then Stewart got in it then jimmy started getting in it Remember the battle between the two of them, of Gordon and Johnson, where they just beat the ever-living snot out of each other? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and they were not happy about it in the press room? That was awesome. One of the highlights of my career. Um, I'm not sure Jeff sees it the same way because he finished second, but for me growing up as a Jeff Gordon fan and knowing his success at Martinsville and then 
my uh, my early starts and years at Martinsville were just so painful. To have that duel to the finish is, uh, is just something every driver wants. So um, I'm thankful for the bumpers at that point. We're pretty you know pretty much in line because if it was the old Monte Carlo style vehicle, um, I think it would have been in the turn four wall with all the contact that we had. But uh, there's there's no better way to finish a race and side by side door to door. Now, how many uh, Martinsville wins does Jeff Gordon have? Ten, I think. Ten. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had one of those light bulb moments at Martinsville where you were on the track and you finally figure out how to do it correctly mm-hmm. and be good. There's mm-hmm. very few light bulb moments that go on here. It's it's just all kinds of, of little tiny details that come together uh, as a driver that help you get around this track. And then the setup has to, to complement it or work with it as well. And for me, that's that's what happened here was back in the day I was able to test here, come make a lot of laps and start working on those details. And once I figured out a, uh, a few fairly major things that I would call maybe a bit of a light bulb moment, it allowed me to then give uh, really good information to the team to, to, to figure out how to go faster. And so, and that's why I say so few things have changed here over the years that what I learned then and what we do as a team from all the way back to, you know, 15, you know, 18 years ago can still sort of apply and, and does apply. And, and so I think this is that one place where experience and, and having, you know, a good baseline or a good track record can, can continue to pay off for you. Meanwhile, early in his career, uh, Jimmy Johnson talked about how Jeff Gordon and Tony Stewart helped him race at Martinsville. With Jeff, I mean, we were very fortunate to, in that point in time, to test. We, we had a lot of test sessions we could use up. I think I had 12 as a rookie, my rookie season. And with data traces and, and even just general testing rules and procedures, it was very easy to get Jeff here and work with him and understand what to do. And you know, we, we took every step we could to get, get me prepared and get me right. And I still was kind of in the way. And truthfully, I think our second trip here, so the fall of my rookie year, I got lapped by Tony. And then all the verbal stuff that Jeff said, all the mechanical stuff, because we basically just put his setup under my car and go figure it out type thing. It all came together when I followed Tony, could pick up the rhythm. And you know, this is a track where a half a tenth per end of the racetrack is huge. And, and it's so hard to even quantify that or see that. And it, it took me following Tony and, and getting into that rhythm where I picked it up and I was fortunate enough to get my lap back, and then I think we ran the top 15 or top 10. And from that point on, I'm like, okay, I, I see it, I get it, or, or maybe more so, I feel it and understand that rhythm. Why would Jeff Gordon and Tony Stewart teach Jimmy Johnson anything about any track? <laughs> that's right. You know, and, and you know, but that's a, that's kind of how you do it. If if you look at if you listen to some of the things Dale Jr. says, you know, he he was there as a kid watching all these guys race. Right. All right, and then when he actually got there to race, he raced late models there. Mm-hmm. So he kind of knew what was going on. But but you don't just drop onto a place like Martinsville. There's no bank. It's very tight. If you're not handling and you get up out of the bottom groove, you're going to get punted. What I thought was really interesting when researching this mm-hmm. topic was that Jeff drove the track one way and Jimmy drives the track a different way as far as being aggressive. Right. Jimmy is much more aggressive, and he explained why. And when you go to a racetrack and you're you're concerned about how you're going to run there, and, and you start protecting, you know, a nice top five run or top two, top three, whatever it might be, 
you know, maybe you don't race as open as you should and take the chances that you should to win and be as aggressive as, as you need to. Um, and I was fortunate to get a win, you know, fairly early in my cup career here, and I've been able to race here with an open mind and, and not worrying about protecting. And that, as I'm on the track, I see a lot of different drivers. You know, they get to the top five, and you know, it's a tough track to get around, and they, they're very defensive and worried about every little inch on the track and protecting and blocking. And I, I've been able to get so much experience here and understand how to pass and set our car up that I'm just thinking offense the whole time. And maybe there is a small mindset there that is the difference. I thought that was interesting. Exactly. Well, and it's true because anytime that, that your bumper is that available to a competitor, <laughs> you know, it's going to get used. Mm-hmm. But, you know, and Jimmy's, Jimmy's an off-road guy anyway. Right, so right. he kind of goes where they're not, or in his case, where cactuses aren't. Mm-hmm. Cacti, right, whatever. Right. Um, and, you know, he didn't grow up in the, on the bull ring like a Dale Sr. or a, a Dale Jr. or a Tony Stewart or Jeff Gordon. So, you know, that's an underdeveloped storyline in his success is the fact that he did not grow up doing this. Right. First time he ever drove a stock car was an ASA, which at the time was still among the, the top uh, series in the country. Mm-hmm. It was a national, quasi-national series. So, and he did a really, really good job with it. So that is interesting. And, and you go back and you, you see this track and how, you know, everybody thinks like Charlotte or Texas or... You know, some of the other tracks are very technical. Well, this is probably more technical than any of them because there is such limited opportunity to do stuff. You can't let the car, let the ponies run, you know. You have to go and be technical and drive the damn thing. Yeah, Ron, and along those lines, uh, Johnson talked about why he's done so well at Martinsville despite his lack of short track experience prior to coming into NASCAR. You know, it took a while to get there. And when I came into the sport, I, I had two years in ASA and thought that the short tracks would fit well for me, and it was quite the opposite. And I think it just took a long time to understand the big car, the radial tire, um, and, and the extra power, and how to how to maneuver around on a short track. But the track at Martinsville, especially when the rubber is laid down, it reminds me of some of my off-road stuff where we would have kind of barrels or tire, tractor tires stacked up as a turning marker, turn marker, but it was about that tight of a radius. And uh, when the rubber lays down, especially the right side rubber on corner exit at Martinsville, um, you have to change your line to not run through the rubber at the wrong spot. And that rhythm, uh, I think it really helps all dirt drivers. It doesn't matter if it's Tony in a sprint car or dirt late model or Casey Kane for that matter. Um, I think certain guys have an eye for where the slick spots are on the track and how to change their lines. And I think all of our dirt backgrounds really help that. You would think Kyle Larson would be good. I imagine so. And that team has been pretty good because mm-hmm. Montoya used to run really well there, Jamie right. McMurray. Yeah. You know, and really, there you contrast with guys who really like racing there, and then you have the Sterling Marlins of the world that wanted to flood the place and race boats <laughs> because they were so bad there. Yeah. And I think you, Kyle Petty said that at once exactly, one time. Put yeah. a lake in there, stock it with fish. That's right. You know, whatever. Yeah. But, you know, it, it can be frustrating, and it is the only paperclip. Now, New Hampshire mm-hmm. is a big paperclip. Right, one right. One of those, you know, like really big ones. But it's it drives completely different, and it has banking to it. This has 12 degrees of bank, mm-hmm. which, you know, <laughs> that's not that's nothing compared to like 36 degrees because there's nothing to hold the car. It, it's basically all mechanical grip. There's no arrow to speak of, and NASCAR likes to take arrow away, which I sort of do too, but – 
it's a place where you have to drive the damn race car. Richard Petty had a pretty good record there too, didn't he? Yes, he did. <laughs> well, look, Richard Richard was a technician. Mm-hmm. Now he was not going to go out there and out muscle you, but he would just drive around you. You know, David Pearson could out muscle you and drive around you. Uh huh. Dobby Allison kind of the split the difference, and and I really think that Richard's Richard's smooth mm-hmm. was so smooth as a driver. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of guys would saw the wheel. Richard's just like, <laughs> and he's like, like you're driving down 220 on the way to the house, you know. But Martinsville is a rhythm racetrack. Everybody talks about how, you know, it's it's all about, you know, handling and everything. It's rhythm. You have to be on the gas, off the gas, on the gas, on the brake, on, you know, it, and it's all rhythm. Buddy Baker won at Martinsville, his only win, 1979. Really? And he beat Richard Petty. I asked him back in 2010 how he dealt with Petty on the way to the victory. Richard Petty was a lap down trying to get his lap back, and we ran 200 laps side by side. And the left side of my car looked more like Richard Petty's car than mine did. He he wallered me to death, and after the race, he came over and he said, you know, I could have turned you. And I said, not Richard Petty. That's the one thing. He raced you the way you would want to be raced. And we did a lot of rubbing. But he said, uh, but I will tell you, there was a couple of times I thought about turning you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and that's Richard never really had to. Now, when he wanted to, he could do it because you don't grow up where he did without learning how to get a caution when you need one or or whatever. But, you know, he's always been a gentleman and and he's always raced. He'll race you the way you race him. If Mm -hmm. you park him, he'll he'll get you. Right. And he'll shake that bony finger at you and you feel bad about yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And your sponsors will feel bad about yourself. Now, that day in 79, Buddy led 209 laps. Richard Petty did finish second, did not lead a lap that day at Martinsville. Can you believe that? That was a rarity. Yeah, yeah. Daryl led 184 laps and finished 11th. (laughs) (laughs) And he started on the pole. That's that's the thing, too. You get off Mm -hmm. uh, a little bit. You have a... You know, you miss a pit stop or you, you get caught on the outside or whatever, and your day's done. Yeah. Especially back then, too, because that had two pit roads back then. Now, until it's not been until recently they've had one single pit road, even though it goes all the way around the track. Right, right. The only part that's not pit road is the part between turn two and turn three. <laughs> so, but the really cool place to watch there, I found out, hmm. the garages that they have. Right. They're right up against the back pit wall. Right. And you can sit there, uh, lean up against the wall there, and watch out at ground level mm-hmm. as they come out of turn two. It's really cool. I remember back in the day, we uh, came from the media center up top, walked down, crossed the uh, pedestrian walkway, the uh, fans' walkway, right through the fence, mm-hmm. walked on the grass, went all the way down near the wall, and for the last, you know, 10 laps or so, you know, waiting for the race to finish so we can go interview the drivers. They don't really let anybody do that anymore. No, no. <laughs> First time I did it was, I mean, I was shocked. Oh, yeah. Because you actually walked on the racetrack to get up to the press box. Yeah. No tunnel. Right. Now they have a really nice tunnel, and everybody kind of goes in and out. But it was a charming because, you know, you could see, it's like Bristol. It was The press box was in turn one and two. You could see everything. You could mm-hmm. see all the way to, to whatever the big city is right there. Roanoke. Roanoke, Roanoke wherever. You. Danville yeah, or whatever. Danville. Yeah. And it was just, it was so cool. Yeah. I really enjoyed it. Well, back then, I mean, we were, you know, sitting there on the grass, and God forbid, a couple of cars would have spun and hit the wall right in front of us. Mm-hmm. You know, could have been disaster. But yes. there was probably a dozen of us waiting to cross the uh, to 
cross over the track to go interview the drivers. I remember that. Now it's all spoon-fed to you. You don't get to actually talk to a driver without 16 shh, layers. Shh, shh, don't say that. What? Don't say that. Why? Because we, Be- might, we might get in trouble. Why? I don't know. We just It doesn't sound good. If people are listening to this that can get us in trouble, I'm all for that. <laughs> just kidding. No, it's, the game has changed, certainly, yeah, since we've been around. It you know? has. Actually, the biggest change was the fact that they stopped using horses and started using engines when you and I started. <laughs> yeah. Ben-Hur was a was, – I mean – Yeah. I, can, I remember Ben-Hur's rookie season. No, you don't. No, I don't. No. All right. Well, I know who's somebody who does remember Ben-Hur's rookie season. Uh, is that because the music just played? The music just played. I beat you to it this week. I like the music. I do, too. Yeah. Cool. It's got a beat, and you can dance to it. No, you can't. Oh. I don't want to see that. Don't. <laughs> My eyes, Sit people. My, I, can't, I can't unsee that. <laughs> I can't stop. I can't stop. This week's featured segment, as always, is called Beat the Buzzer. It's very simple. We've managed to entice Stockar historian Buzz McKim to join us each week for this segment, and... Our listeners can win prizes, too. Prizes? Are we giving prizes away again? No, Buzz is a human prize factory. Let's face it. Well, that's Come true. On. That's true. Buzz, welcome back to Back in the Day. Oh, thank you, gentlemen. It's definitely the high point of my week. <laughs> <laughs> you must be really bored. That's right. <laughs> Buzz, Martinsville predates NASCAR. Can you give us your thoughts on its place in the sport nowadays? Yes. Well, you know, it really is kind of sacred ground. I know when, uh, when Dale Jr., finally got his win at Martinsville a few years ago. He felt like it was one of the most significant wins of his career. He felt it put him in the same category as all the greats that have won at Martinsville. So uh, it's it's the longest continually run. Uh, well, it's one of the charter tracks of NASCAR. Actually, it's one of the very, very first tracks that NASCAR ever signed on. And uh, uh, I, th- I think it might be the last one on the circuit from the original tracks. I think you're right. Texas has been a big place in the more recent history of NASCAR, Talk about what the addition of Texas to the schedule did for NASCAR. Well, you know, uh, Texas is such a big market, and it's always been a hotbed for NASCAR fans. And, you know, they they tried the Texas World Speedway a number of years ago and outside of College Station, but it was kind of off and on and never really, really caught on, you know. And and now I think it's just a place where they deposited a bunch of flood-damaged cars from the hurricane. And um, But then Texas Motor Speedway came along, and, uh, of course, Bruce Smith, he did everything right. And uh, it has really become one of the class spots on the circuit. And uh, I I just think it it adds so much to the sport being down there in Texas where you have such strong, uh, you know, like American values and all that sort of thing. And Mm -hmm. and NASCAR is such a red, white, and blue sport. And I think it all ties in so incredibly well. Wonderful. All right. As usual, you've done this a time or two with us. The week before each episode, we put out the call for Junior Nation and Dirty Mo followers to take to our Twitter accounts at Exalta Racing and at Dirty Mo Radio and post with a hashtag back in the day, tag with at Exalta. Of those, Buzz will represent one lucky fan and beat the buzzer against the Wiley co-hosts, who are winless <laughs> this year, Steve and Ron. If the buzzer gets them all right, he usually does. One lucky fan chosen randomly from that week's submitters will win a prize from either Dirty Mo Radio or Exalta this week. Who are we playing for? We are playing for Tom Dixon. All right, Tom. Tom. Hey, Tom. We're wily and we're smiley. Wily and smiley. And, <laughs> and not shyly. What is it? Uh, once more unto the breach, my yeah. friend. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, okay, Steve, let's get this party started. All right. Well, here is question number one. 
One Texas native has won a Cup Series race at Texas. Who was it? Ah, yeah, you know, there's a couple of possibilities there. But uh, I'm thinking probably good old Texas Terry Labonte. Yep. Yes. See, look, this is a deception right now. Okay. The hard questions are okay. coming next. Yeah. Oh, I'm ready. Okay. <laughs> you're gonna, you're, and you have not seen these questions. They've been in uh, a mayonnaise jar on Funkin' Wagnall's front porch. Um, question number two. In which year did a Petty first win at Martinsville? Oh, yes. Okay. Let's see. Uh, I'm thinking uh, it was probably Papa Lee. He won three times there, as a matter of fact, twice under, once on asphalt. His last win was there, uh, was there in 1959. And then Richard, his boy, took over in 60. And then Richard went on to win the most races at Martinsville. I, I can't imagine what he's done with all those grandfather clocks. You haven't answered the question yet. What year? Oh, uh-huh. All right, Lee was correct. What year? Yes, what, yes. what year did he win his first race at Martinsville? Oh, that w- yeah, that would have been 1953. Oh man, darn it! <laughs> I See, thought we had him. We built a two-part <laughs> thing in there. He's oh still, man, he is just too good for us. Well, Tom, Tom's happy, I'm sure, because he he stays alive Tom, for the for the prize. Tom Dixon, oh, yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right, here we go. Question number three. Dale Earnhardt Jr.'s first victory came at TMS in 2000 in his seventh career start as a full-time cup driver. We knew that. Which driver made his first and only cup series start in that same exact race? Uh, Yes, Uh, that would have been the very first fourth-generation professional athlete in the history of all sport, believe it or not. That was Adam Petty. And, in fact, we had that car on display in the Hall of Fame just up until a few weeks ago. We had the Petty Legacy exhibit there, and, boy, we were sure honored to have Adam's car there from his one-cup start. And uh, it makes you wonder what what would have happened. In that race itself, he had engine problems, and uh, I believe he finished around around 40th. And uh, so we never really knew what, what he was capable of. Well, I think that uh, I now know the reason why you would never tell us what uh, what the Petty exhibit uh, entailed because you were saving that one, weren't you? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they, you thought that far ahead. Right. I interviewed Adam during pre-race for that race on PRN. Wow, yeah. really? Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. You still have that? I believe so, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Wow, that's a keeper. You know, the, that's the, for sure. What? the question begs itself, what would have happened had he not mm-hmm. – have uh, crashed at, at New Hampshire. What, what could have happened mm. to the Petty Empire at that point? I think that's a question for another show. Oh, but. well, you're you're right. It's um, you know, of course, he had it in his um, you know in his uh, DNA uh, to be a great driver, and uh, you know, he had shown. Well, he won that ARCA race at Charlotte, which you know, his daddy did the same thing like twenty, thirty years earlier at Daytona, and it was ironic and. Uh, so I think I think it proven himself that he could be a competitive racer, and it does make you wonder. But you know, Richard Petty. You know, people asked him about you know, gee, sorry about that. Yeah, how do you feel about that? And Richard was very philosophical. He said, "Don't ever put a question mark where God puts a period." And went, wow. wow, that's yeah, that's pretty heavy. Well, the question I have a more life-oriented question: If Adam Petty does not lose his life, does Victory Junction Camp get built? And do all the ki- all the kids and the families who have benefited from that? Do they not benefit from that? Maybe they build it later, wow. 
later in, in, yeah. in Adam's life, but look at all the families that were affected in a positive way by what happened. Man, so. I mean, you're right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, look at the thousands of people whose lives have kids whose lives have been touched by, uh, you know, through that tragedy. You could say the same thing about Dale Earnhardt's death. You know, all the all the safety advances and yeah. the people that were saved. You know, God has a bigger plan. You're right. Well, he sure does. Richard's right. Little picture, we only. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's pretty heavy. Well. Well, I hate you, Mr. Philosopher. Hate to wind it up on that kind of a note, but <laughs> well, that yeah. was just yeah. think, okay. thinking about that. You know. Buzz, Buzz beat us again. There, happy note. Yeah, woo! No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> hey, Tom. Tom wins a prize. Tom wins a prize. Well, um, <laughs> you know, we're having our last show of the year in November, and mm. I, I've sent away for questions for this. Oh, you have? I've sent away. Where do you send? I can't oh. tell you that. That's, oh. that's a trade secret. Okay, oh. okay. We are we're going to cull the archives, most of which you adjudicate, so it's not... Uh... Are we going to give away <laughs> our, our last show topic? We're going to have our last show uh, of the year, our culminatory show, yeah. and it's going to be on... Yes. ...the impact of a certain guy that we all know whose name is on this building. Oh. Uh, the McKim building? The McKim building. Well, oh. that's... <laughs> I have a feeling the show is going to be about Dale Jr. Yes, it's going to be about Dale Jr. Okay, mm-hmm. and his mm-hmm. impact on the there sport. Yeah, right. We're going to have some cool special guests. Right, we are, including Buzz McKim. Oh, well, and, thank you and, very much. And man, we are going to stump you the last show of the season. I can just feel it. We're going to do, do it. it. We're Let's going to do, do it. it. All right. <laughs> so, Buzz, thanks again. We'll talk to you in uh, in a couple of weeks for the big send off show. All right. Always a pleasure, guys. Thanks so much. That's it for this episode of Back in the Day. Thanks to Buzz McKim, our resident NASCAR guru, for playing along with us again. And keep an eye on at Exalta Racing and at Dirty Mo Radio for the opportunity to play along. Remember, history is made every day, so be a part of it with Back in the Day. Thanks for listening to Dirty Mo Radio. 